session. Just a quick notice, if you haven't done your menu choices for this evening, would you please see Jackie? Okay. And it's um, my pleasure to welcome the first of our afternoon seminar speakers, whose name I won't forget, because it's the same name as my dad. <laughs> so, um, Peter Williams is the Assistant Professor in Communication and World Views at Inley Common School of Journalism and Communication in Norway. Um, he also works with UK Demise, translating philosophy conferences for A-level students and undertaking writing, speaking, debating and broadcasting engagements. He's authored several books and has been published by various websites, magazines and journals. And he's going to lead us on a seminar on why does a, a good God allow people to do evil? So, um, Peter. Right, thank you very much. So, a little light after-lunch philosophy uh, for us all. Uh, philosophy is, of course, part of spiritual warfare. Um, we take captive strongholds and we demolish every argument that raises itself up against the knowledge of God. Um, and indeed, most of my talk will be spent talking about demolishing arguments that people try to construct from the obvious reality of evil against the reality of God or the, the rationality of believing in God. I will dedicate some time to actually looking at that question of why does God allow people to do evil things? But um, and I hope I'll, I'll dig a little bit below the obvious answer, which you're all expecting me to give, which is why does God allow uh, people to do evil things? It's something to do with free will. Okay, so... And now I'm not just going to sit down having delivered that. <laughs> but, you know, that is obviously the main Christian answer in this area. Um, but there's more to be said, and I hopefully will put uh, a context uh, around that for you uh, as well. Sometimes I certainly find in doing work with sixth form students in schools around the country, people often think that merely to raise the question, just to ask you the question, well, you know, if, the, if there's a God, then how come... X, Y, or Z, the, the hurricane, the earthquake, um, the particular crime that's been on telly that week. Um, how come? And it's tempting to get sucked into actually trying to answer that question, uh, which is a task that uh, Christian philosophers and theologians have called theodicy down the years. Theodicy is a term that means explaining the ways of God to man basically, to actually try and answer, well, here is God's reason for allowing this earthquake or that piece of suffering. And I think we do have a good deal of insight uh, that allows us sometimes to give answers to that kind of question. But not all the time. And actually, when people ask me the question, you know, if there's a God, how come he allows this out of the other? I very often want, want to take a bit of time with them to show them that we need to dig below that question, that there are certain assumptions that are made within their question, uh, some of which can be turned back to, to Christian benefit in the conversation. Um, as we'll see with um, C.S. Lewis, I'm going to do a bit of blatant advertising for the book that I bought that's on the book table uh, for the C.S. Lewis book, because I'll, I'll start in a minute when I get onto the PowerPoint looking at um, C.S. Lewis and how he grappled uh, with evil, both when he was an atheist and now his, how his grappling with evil actually was part of the process that led him to come to believe in God and then later uh, to Christianity, obviously. 
But um, when we ask this question, how come, it's also something of a move that's taken place within the philosophical discussion on this to say, well, you're acting as if if I had an inability to answer that question, if my answer to your question about suffering was, I don't know, okay, why would you think that that was a sort of negative point in the balance against a Christian view of things? Actually, if there is a God and he has a reason for the suffering that exists, which surely he must if he is the kind of God we believe in, Actually, how likely is it that I would be privy to what that reason is? You see. Uh, And so I think we should get comfortable with the fact that when we point to some, you know, why did this child die of leukemia? Why did this person die in the light aircraft crash? Or whatever it is. That actually saying, honestly, I don't know is not something that goes in the deficit column of the the balance of evidence for and against Christianity. Um, So those are some of the the issues that we'll be looking at. So let's get on to the the PowerPoint. I'll do the the non-blatant C.S. Lewis advert first. Um, It's on the book table. You need to buy it before we disappear at the uh, end of the second session uh, today. It's just hot off the presses. Um, If you don't manage to get it today, you can order it online from Amazon and all the the usual sorts of places. Uh, This is the first book of mine that has a trailer on YouTube. Yes. So let me share with you the trailer from YouTube and I'll um, I'll leap into C.S. Lewis's grappling with the problem of evil uh, on the back of this trailer. Yep, it's going to work. Come on. There we go. We can all understand how a man forgives offences against himself. You tread on my toes, I forgive you. You steal my money, I forgive you. But what should we make of a man, himself unrobbed and untrodden upon, who announced that he forgave you for treading on other men's toes and stealing other men's money? Asinine fatuity is the kindest description we should give of his conduct. This is Lewis. Possibility, almost too obvious to need mentioning, is that Jesus was honestly mistaken. Plenty of people are. C.S. Lewis, who should have known better, said, I know not how many of my publications you have read, Professor Dawkins, but I think you'll misconstrue the nature of this trilemma. Let's take another look and make sure we've left no stone unturned. Who's argued so well up till then? Can't complete a syllabus. Poor guy. Are you sure about that? Never could quite do that. Tell me, you're chewing more than you bite off, my good chap. Please call me Jack. That's precisely the problem with faith: believing in something for which there isn't any evidence. On the contrary, faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted. In spite of your changing movements. I'm sure nobody's explained that to you already. There is no good reason to believe in God. But then we must come to the very existence of reason itself, and whether that may constitute what you call evidence. If science comes 
can't give you the answer. Philosophy won't, and certainly not religion. Bless me, what do they teach them at these schools? So let me pick up from the the point at the end there. Um, A lot of people today, including the new atheists, have a very narrow view of what it is to know something, how we can come to know things. Remember that quote in there about if, if science doesn't give you the answer, then religion sure as heck won't. Actually, indeed, lots of people have the idea if science doesn't give you the answer, then nothing Well, science is the way to know about reality. Coupled with the observation that science doesn't tell you anything about right and wrong, science describes how the world does work, not how it ought to be. How it is, not how it ought to be. And ethics, of course, is all about how the world ought to be, how you ought or ought not to behave You can see why many people who have this narrow understanding of how we come to know reality very soon descend into a moral relativism, a moral subjectivism. Uh, Our morals is just, well, whatever works for you, whatever I happen to like, but we can have a disagreement. Well, no, we can't really have a disagreement. It's like when I say, oh, look at those those desserts on the dessert table. Am I going to have the the cheesecake or the cheese and biscuits or the chocolate? Oh, I love chocolate fudge cake. I prefer chocolate fudge cake. And you say to me, why are you making that choice? I prefer strawberry cheesecake. Now, are we disagreeing with one another? We're not really contradicting each other. We're just expressing our personal preference. And we can have differing differing personal preferences without contradicting one another. And yet, if the commandant of Belson concentration camp says, I think the Holocaust is, a, is you know, the best thing that we really ought to do for society, and I say, no, hang on a minute, I think the Holocaust is wrong, well, there is a difference of opinion between us, isn't there? But is it just a difference of opinion? Isn't it actually the case that one of us is right and one of us is wrong? We're actually contradicting each other, even if you don't know in that particular case, as I hope all of us would claim to know, which one of us is right and which one of us is wrong. Um, Obviously, there are difficult cases in morality where we go, I don't really know what the answer is. But the very fact that we struggle with trying to find the right answer indicates that morality is not just different strokes for different folks, but that there's a fact of the matter that we're trying to get right. You know, um, It really is wrong to torture small children for fun, and anyone who thinks otherwise you know, is wrong about that. And it's not just that we have differing personal preferences. So you get this distinction, even amongst um, atheists... You have those with a very narrow view of knowledge who who end up having to give up on the the objective reality of values. But you do have atheists 
who will defend the objective reality of moral values and will say, no, there really is moral disagreement. There really are moral facts. They're not, they're not physical facts. They're not facts that science can discover, but they are facts of reality that we can discover. And so they have a broader view of how we can know about reality. They will admit, for example, that we can know reality through philosophy, uh, through intuition, and so on. Now, C.S. Lewis was the latter kind of atheist. And he, uh, of course, was of that generation that had to suffer through the trenches of World War I. Indeed, uh, C.S. Lewis was invalided out of the army in World War I uh, when he and his troops were advancing across no man's land under the cover of a creeping barrage from the British, which started creeping in the wrong direction, blew up his sergeant and a lot of his men around him, uh, blew him to the floor with shrapnel wounds, and until uh, the rest of his life, he had a bit of shrapnel lodged quite close to his heart because it was too close for them to operate on uh, back then. Uh, so this is someone who knew about suffering, and as an atheist at the time, he wanted to say, look, there really is evil in the world, evil such that if there were a god, he ought not to allow that evil to exist. That would be something that God really ought not to allow. The evil clearly is here, therefore there's no God. You can see how the structure of that argument works. But it only works if you're prepared to say, that really is evil. And you can only say, that really is evil, if you say there really are objective values. There is objective good. And falling short of the good to find something as being objectively evil. Oh. Okay, coming back. Good. So Lewis says this in one of his papers. He says, it's widely believed that scientific thought does put us in touch with reality, whereas moral or metaphysical thought doesn't. On this view, when we say that the, the universe is a space-time continuum we're saying something about reality. Whereas if we say that men ought to get a living wage, we're only describing our subjective feelings. And he rejected that view. And he said, my argument against God, when he was an atheist, was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man doesn't call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. There's going to be a standard by which you're measuring it. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? If the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, why did I, who was supposed to be part of the show, find myself in such violent reaction to it? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed. For the argument depended on saying the world was really unjust, not simply that it didn't happen to please my fancies. Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, my idea of justice, was full of sense. And consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. 
So grappling with the reality of evil was actually something that forced C.S. Lewis to deal with the problem of good, if you like, the problem of what are values and how do you explain their existence, what worldview do they fit with, not a materialistic, naturalistic one. It says, uh, if nature is the only thing in existence, then of course there can be no other source for our standards than, than nature. They must, like everything else, be the unintended and meaningless outcome of blind forces. If there's no straight line elsewhere, how do we discover nature's line is crooked? So he's really arguing like this. Uh, the shortest kind of argument you can have makes two truth claims and draws a conclusion from it. And what he's saying is this. First truth claim. If, if materialism, naturalism is true, then nothing can be objectively evil. But second truth claim, something is objectively evil. Therefore, metaphysical naturalism is false. Materialism is false. And then he, grappling with this, extended it in a more positive direction of argument. He says, the defiance of the good atheist hurled at an apparently ruthless and idiotic cosmos is really an unconscious homage to something to something in or behind the cosmos that he recognises as infinitely valuable and authoritative, justly authoritative. For his mercy and justice were really only private whims of his own, he couldn't go on being indignant. The fact that he arraigns heaven itself for disregarding them, these, these values, means that on some level of his mind he knows that they're enthroned in a higher heaven still. So more positively he's arguing this, Claim one, if, if a holy good, a justly authoritative God, if a holy good personal God uh, exists, uh, if he doesn't exist, then objective moral values can't. But objective moral values do. So such a good, uh, authoritative, justly authoritative personal God does exist. And interestingly, you will find certain atheist philosophers at least partially agreeing with that. So this is a very famous Oxford philosopher from the last century called J.L. Mackey. Um, his book, The Miracle of Theism, was set reading when I was at Cardiff Uni studying philosophy. And he says there, if there are objective values, they make the existence of a god more probable than it would have been without them. Thus we have a defensible argument from morality to the existence of god. But he's an atheist. So how does he handle that? Well, he handled that by saying, so there must not be any objective moral values. I'm going to have to bite the bullet, as it were, and say, if there were objective values, there's good evidence for thinking there's a God. I don't believe in God, or I don't want to believe in God. So I'm going to have to be prepared to say there are no objective moral values. Well, you pay your money, you take your choice. And yeah, I certainly know which I think is the more problematical claim to affirm. Is it more problematical to have to say, okay, there's a God? Or is it more problematical to say, okay, the Holocaust wasn't wrong? <laughs> okay? <coughs> so, I'll, just, I'll stop occasionally for, for audience uh, feedback and questions and points of clarification and so on, because I don't want to, to steamroller. Uh, through this. So if we follow them, want me to clarify on anything or ask me any questions on, on where we've got to. Just 
just letting the cake settle. <laughs> well, don't be, don't be shy about uh, sticking a hand up if you do have a question as I go through. In the, the philosophical discussion on the problem of evil has, has moved on a lot in the last half century. And philosophers will talk about the, the kind of classical or so-called logical problem of evil. And now, actually, most of the discussion is, is about a different form of argument called the evidential problem of evil. Atheist uh, Robin Leprofdheim puts the, the classical or logical problem about as well as you could, I think. And this shows, interestingly, that when you try and, when you try and move from that question, if God, why evil? Why does God allow blah, blah, blah? And you actually try and construct an argument to show that there is a linkage between the existence of evil and the non-existence of God, that is very difficult to do. And actually, even most atheist philosophers of religion today admit that no one succeeded in doing that. It's one thing to have a sort of gut reaction against evil that seems to intuitively imply something about God. It's another thing to actually construct a decent argument where you can show, well, this is why, given that there's evil, it's irrational to think that there's a God. And I think atheist Robin Leprofdon does about as good a job as you can do here. And he puts it like this. So here's his first claim. If God, and you kind of specify, well, what kind of God? Because there's all sorts of gods, aren't there? What kind of God are you talking about here? Well, if God's meant to be all-knowing, then he'd be aware of suffering. So, for example, you couldn't let yourself have the get-out clause of saying, well, God and evil coexist because God doesn't know about the evil. And, of course, if he doesn't know about it, then you can hardly fault him for not having done anything about it, can you? You say, well, I'm not going to let you get away with saying that because you believe in a God who would know about evil if he existed, don't you? See? The move? Okay. So if God's all-knowing, he'll be aware of suffering. If he's all-powerful, he'll be able to prevent suffering. If he's perfectly good, he'll desire to prevent suffering, surely. But clearly, he doesn't prevent suffering and evil. There it is. So, what conclusion can we draw? Either, this is a very significant term here, either there is no such deity defined in this way, or if there is a deity, he's not all-knowing, all-powerful, and perfectly good, though he may be one or two of these... So fascinatingly, when you try and actually move from that question to an argument, you find out that the problem of evil isn't an argument for atheism. It's certainly not an argument for a materialistic worldview. All it is, even if it works, which of course it doesn't, (laughs) but even if it did work, all it is, is an argument against a certain view of God's character. Okay? Now, of course, the difficulty for Christians is that the view of God's character that this is an argument against is a view that we want to uphold. Okay? But I just want to point out what, what a weak argument that is in terms of defending atheism or materialism. Okay? And that's the number one argument for atheism, isn't it? And it's not even an argument for atheism. <laughs> so... That is a significant point. I just 
Yeah, please. That was, I mean, there, there are plenty of books around by Christians, well, a few anyway, who could argue this at this level, but there doesn't appear to be there's a conspiracy of selectivism in the media mm. that doesn't allow that argument to be presented. How easy yeah. it is to, however easy it is to, to overturn it, mm. that in itself appears to me to be as much of a problem as the argument itself. Yes, it's absolutely. It's one thing to get a, uh, the arguments on our side. It's another thing to be able to communicate them, <coughs> particularly in a media that's stacked against you because of the cultural milieu. And, and I think one of the wonderful things about new media, about the internet, about YouTube, about podcasting and so on, is that it, it, this is you know put media channels into the people's hands more. And so you can do an end run around. Um, I mean, I had a, a debate this week at Cardiff University. It was the first debate on the existence of God in Cardiff University. I debated one of my former philosophy professors from there. I recorded it. The CU recorded it. They videoed it. I've podcast it on my podcast channel this week. They're going to make a video out of it. We'll put it up on YouTube. We'll put it on the Be Thinking UCCF website. It'll get out there. Um, William Lane Craig, who's a famous Christian philosopher in America, <coughs> just a couple of weeks ago had a debate with an atheist called Alex Rosenberg. Look it up online. They, they live podcast it to every state in America, and I think it was something like 50 countries around the world. There were groups of people watching that debate live. It's now recorded. It's gone onto YouTube. So, you know... Uh, William Lane Craig versus Alex Rosenberg and it was a very good debate for the Christian side but you know several hundred people, a thousand people might turn up to a debate but thousands and thousands of people will watch that same event for decades accumulating and accumulating through new media you wouldn't get that debate broadcast on the BBC I shouldn't think (laughs) but um, you know, you won't reach as many as if you did, but at least, at least the democratising force of new media is something that we can use to our advantage here. Thank you for that point. So an atheist called Rob Richard Gale says, we, we often feel justified in bringing about or not preventing some evil so that a greater evil can be avoided or an outweighing good realised. You see, this argument made this assumption if God's perfectly good he will desire to prevent all suffering but there's an atheist philosopher pointing out well that's, that's not necessarily true is it? What if they're allowing a certain piece of suffering prevented some greater evil or allowed the existence of something good that's good enough to justify this evil but which you couldn't have got without the suffering How do you know that that's not true? Uh, If it were, then surely God would be justified in allowing that. Um, So Lepravda, whose argument from evil we just looked at, ends up admitting suffering may be part of the divine design insofar as suffering is an essential consequence of some greater good. Back to J.L. Mackey. He said this opposition between good and evil that God of his good must be so completely opposed to evil that it wouldn't exist, 
He says, well, he can construe that opposition in such a way that a holy good God would not, after all, eliminate evil as far as he could, right here and now, as it were. It might be argued as well that there are limits to what even an omnipotent being can do. Remember that clause about if God's all-powerful, surely he'd be able to get rid of the evil. Well, not necessarily. It's a bit like saying, um, can, you know, do I have the power to kick a football? Okay. Um, well, I do, but only if I've got a football. So do I now have the power to kick a football? Well, in, in one sense, yes, but in another sense, no. <laughs> you see? So in what context are you asking this, this question about God's power? And he said um, there are limits to what an omnipotent being can do. For example, God can't do what's logically impossible. Even God can't create square circles. Okay? That's not a limitation upon God's power. Um, square circles are just, well, they're not anything. That's nonsense. As C.S. Lewis said, you don't make nonsense into sense by sticking the words God can before it. <laughs> okay? So, Mackey, famous atheist, 20th century, says the problem of evil does not show that the central doctrines of theism are logically inconsistent with one another. You can't show that it's impossible, given that there's evil, that there be a God, even of the Christian understanding of God's character. Atheist William L. Rowe, you'll notice in this talk I'm quoting a lot of atheists. Atheist William L. Rowe says, some philosophers have contended that the existence of evil is logically inconsistent with the existence of God. No one, I think, has succeeded in establishing such an extravagant claim. He's really saying the burden of proof, to bring in a little jargon we may share, as philosophers and people in the legal world, burden of proof is on the person who wants to show that there's uh, a contradiction there. Yes? Isn't this all about God being good? Because they hypothetically... God could be evil. So a, a God could exist, yet mm. um, tolerate evil, <coughs> enjoy evil. This is all based on, on the proposition that God is good. Yes, yeah, so we, we, we remember when we first laid out the logical problem of evil, it admitted in, at the end that there could be a God and evil, as long as he didn't, you didn't say he had all of the qualities that we were attributing to him. So you could say he's omnipotent, he knows about everything, but he's not all good. Okay? What I'm pointing out now is that they're going further and admitting, actually, you can say he's all good, because even an all-good being, who had the power to get rid of evil and knew about it, wouldn't necessarily have to do, it, do that here and now. Yeah, yeah. Is, is there also a premise, because I'm not quite clear at this stage, is there also a premise that says that um, suffering is it equates to evil, or evil equates to suffering? That's an excellent question, yeah. We, we, I don't know, it doesn't seem to have been yeah. proven or disproved at any point so far that <coughs> it's being equated. Yes, that's right. There, there is this general assumption that suffering is a bad thing, yeah. and that therefore a, a good person ought not to allow suffering to occur insofar as they can get rid of it without incurring some outweighing disbenefit and, and so on. Um, so yes, there's usually an equation, particularly when we're talking about su the suffering of sentient beings, of course. So do you tackle that later on? 
Uh, I, I think we'll just I think we'll just conflate them. I, I'm happy to say uh, that the suffering of particularly of sentient beings of people is a bad thing in and of itself. It, the world would be better if there was less suffering. I disagree. <laughs> Fine, great. Let's hear why. Yeah. They have to suffer, say, by sitting on a naughty step. And, but you're teaching them a child that that is not the correct thing to do. They don't like that to say, yeah. but it's really, actually, it's really good for them. Yes. So, obviously, this is a small scale. This is not on the Holocaust scale by any means. But there yeah. is certain suffering consequences yeah. that is actually good for them. Absolutely. And that was the, the, the point that we had from the quote saying, God might allow some suffering or some evil if there's an outweighing good that's secured by it. Or if that evil and suffering prevents some greater evil. So, by disciplining the child, you prevent their lives going off the rails in a way that would cause much more suffering to them and to other people later. So, yeah. We need to be careful about uh, that because there is a thing uh, now, for example, with the waterboarding that was going on. Mm. People say, well, okay, can you waterboard somebody if you know that there's a bombing yeah. here, for example? And uh, some people sort of say, well, actually, well, yes, you can yeah. So does the end justify the means? And, and are there cases where the end does justify the means? And a distinction between those and cases that, that the end doesn't justify the means. Sometimes it seems clear that, that the end does justify the means. That doesn't justify the conclusion that always the end will justify the means. It, it will also depend upon the intrinsic character of the, of the events uh, in question as well. Yes, that's a very good point. It, it seems interesting as well, like, when you look at the Bible, you know, mm. um, a better expression, God induces suffering in people <coughs> at various points, mm. whether it be physical, emotional, mental, as a way of um, delivering messages or, 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 or shaping things the way, that he, yeah. the way that he wants them. So, and if we, I think we're kind of saying that Mm. God isn't evil because we're creating the dichotomy between God and evil yeah. in the argument. So you can't then say that God is doing something evil in terms of his scriptures and in terms of things that he said in the Bible. So that, well, seems, that seems a bit problematic. I, I think that's then getting into territory of, of sort of saying, okay, so the, the, the surgeon who chops off someone's leg um, on the battlefield... Conditions. I've got, I've got to save your life. That's going to mean I'm going to have to chop your leg off. That's going to cause you lots of pain and suffering in the short term. This is going to hurt. I haven't got any anaesthetic. Stick, stick this twig between your teeth. Here we go. <laughs> you know. Um, so he's causing something, some suffering. We agree to call that that suffering is bad. It, but is it outweighed? Is this a situation where that causing that? evil states of affair, that bad state of affairs, is morally justifiable. There might be cases where the end doesn't justify the means, but is this a case where it does? And if it, if it does, we want a good battlefield surgeon to cause the temporary evil of feeling that pain of having my leg chopped off. It, bring, it definitely brings us back then to this idea of equating suffering with evil. Yeah, yeah. Because you couldn't say that God's doing something evil, even in the short term, yeah. for a long term. If you didn't make that equation, absolutely, yeah. yeah. I, I hope this is um, William Lane Craig, by the way, I mentioned earlier. And he puts it like this. I, I think this makes it quite 
easy to grasp the point here. He says that not only have atheists failed to prove, to, to actually come up with a good argument showing that if evil, then there can't be a God, but we can actually prove that the two claims are consistent with one another. And all you need to do that is to, is to make some third claim that you can use in conjunction with either of those claims, God exists, evil exists, from which you can deduce, from, which follows from the other two. So if you had God exists and something else is true, therefore evil exists, if you had an argument like that, that would prove that God and evil can both coexist. He says, we can actually prove that God and evil are logically compatible. See, the atheist presupposes that God cannot have morally sufficient reasons for permitting the evil that's in the world. But this assumption is not necessarily true. That could be false. So long as it's even possible that God has morally sufficient reasons for permitting evil, it follows that God and evil are logically consistent. And again, the burden of proof is on the atheist to, to make good on their claim that it's not even possible that God have a good, a good enough reason. And most atheist philosophers admit they haven't met that burden of proof. How would you go about meeting it? <laughs> it just seems... How would you even make a start on trying to, to prove that? So Michael Bergman here sums up the general position in philosophy world at the moment on the, the logical problem of evil. He says there's a nearly unanimous agreement among both theistic and non-theistic philosophers of religion that this logical version of the argument from evil doesn't work. So I've got the little empty tank <coughs> sign behind it there. Yeah. So the discussion particularly since the sort of mid-1960s or so, has really moved on from that sort of older type of argument from evil to what's called the evidential problem. Atheists have tended to say, OK, OK, the existence of evil doesn't prove that there's no God. It's not a knockdown argument against belief in even a God of the kind that Christians want to believe in. But doesn't the existence of evil count against God? Doesn't the existence of, say, so much evil in the world make it less likely that there's that kind of a God than it would be in a world with a lot less evil, say? So the evil is kind of a piece of evidence in the overall case that you're trying to weigh up for and against God. Excuse the scales of justice here, see? <coughs> they don't claim that evil disproves God but rather that it, it counts against the rationality of God. And when you, again, try and, and construct an argument to, sh to cash that out, you notice how difficult it becomes. And this is a sort of representative of the kind of argument that people try and construct. And I reckon as I go through this, little alarm bells will start going off in the back of your minds, going, hang on a minute, there's something a bit fishy about that, isn't there? Let's, let's look through this. Okay, let's start here. Number one. I don't see any good reason, or any good enough reason, why God would, would do or allow X, some example of, be it suffering or, or, or personal evil. But two, if, 
if I, if we, can't see a good enough reason for God doing or allowing X, then there probably isn't one. Thank you for the chuckles. Good. (laughs) From which it would follow, if those were both true, that therefore there's probably no good reason for God to do or allow X. But unless there is a good reason why God would do or allow X, God probably doesn't exist. From which it would follow that God probably doesn't exist. Yeah, so probably, probably. It's a weaker conclusion than the, than the old kind of argument. But you noticed some problems as we went through there, didn't you? Because I heard the chuckles, and I think you're right. These are the three crucial claims. The, that one follows from those two, and that one follows from these. So these are the things to question. What about this? I don't see a good reason. This is where we come back to actually trying to answer that question. Why does God allow? And as soon as you try and answer that question, to give a theodicy rather than simply a a defence, which is what I'm concentrating on, you respond to this by trying to suggest one or more plausible reasons why God would allow this evil or that. And this is where, yeah, free will, I think, does play a central role in the Christian response to this. Uh, A loving God would have good reasons to place persons in situations where we can have lives that are rich in meaning and significance. And a lot of that is bound up with our free will, our response, our interconnectedness, our responsibility for ourselves and for one another and for our environment and so on. The, The significance of our choices is largely linked to the the consequences or expectable outcomes of our choices and the benefits or the harms that they're apt to bring about or prevent. I can only be deeply connected in responsibility for you in a positive way with freedom if there's the possibility of me falling down on the job. Um, If I haven't got the freedom to harm you I haven't got the freedom to prevent harm from happening to you. So if a loving God exists, we did ought to expect there to be rich opportunities to make choices between good and evil in a context where we can foresee at least quite a lot of the consequences of our actions. So if God exists, it's not surprising that we've got such opportunities. It might be heart-rending that people take advantage of those opportunities in ways that fall short of the standard of goodness that we know is there from the, from the moral argument. But it's naturally something that, on the Christian view of the world, you should expect to find. And so finding that, that reality of, of fallenness, interconnectedness, responsibility, and the suffering involved in that in a sense, is actually a plus point on the Christian view. If you have a, a scientific theory that predicts something, you go out there, you look, you find it, it verifies the theory that predicted it. Christianity says people are fallen and sinful and morally responsible and created in the image of an interpersonal God. So we go out there and we find that kind of a world with its plus sides and its downsides. And that verifies the Christian view of things. Indeed, Stephen uh, Lehman makes this additional significant point. that As Christians, of course, we don't have a a, a this-worldly limited view of things. 
as the materialist does. The materialist, this is all that the show there is. When the curtain's down, I did it my way, and the, the show's off, you know? But Lehman says, on a Christian view, the existence of significant human freedom makes possible not only very wicked acts, but meaningful, eternal relationships of love and forgiveness between humans and between humans and God. And in a sense, you could kind of say, look, however much evil in this finite world is permitted by that freedom of will, at some stage in the progress of eternity, the good consequences that can come from that will inevitably outweigh. As St. Paul says, you know, I do not consider this light and momentary suffering to be worthy of comparison with the glory that will be revealed. And so I think it is key that Christians bring in the fact that this world is not all there is. This is, this is part of God's plan, but this world's not the whole of God's plan. And very often... Atheists, because they're so this world-focused, don't take cognizance of that bigger picture. Here's another questionable premise. <coughs> premise two was, if I can't see a good reason for God doing or allowing X, then there probably isn't one. Let me give you an analogy with this lovely picture of a fridge here. Okay. Um, look at the fridge, everyone. Uh, is there an adult elephant in the fridge? Yeah. No. Okay, you're very confident about that. Yeah. <laughs> in the custard. You have to look for footprints in the custard. That's right. So, okay. So there's no, there's no visible evidence of adult elephants in the fridge. And from that lack of evidence of elephants in the fridge, we draw a pretty strong conclusion that they're highly probable that there are no elephants in the fridge. Okay? Are there any small bottles of Yakult in the fridge? You don't know? Can't, can't tell? You've got no evidence of small bottles of Yakult. So there's probably no Yakult in that fridge, yeah? No, it could be behind something. It could be behind, exactly. So in one instance, the lack of evidence for something is a really good reason to believe it doesn't exist. Yes. But in another instance, the lack of evidence, positive evidence for something, is not a strong reason for thinking that it doesn't. It all depends upon the kind of thing that you're looking for. Okay. Yes. Well, when we're looking for God's reasons for doing things, are they more like elephants or more like small bottles of Yakult or whatever, or, or bacteria? Or, you know, how likely is it that we'd be the people to know God's reasons if he has them? Well, the atheist has to assume for the argument to go through that we're in a really good position that, that saying, I can't see, therefore God probably doesn't have, is like spotting elephants rather than spotting fleas. Okay? Um, and again, the burden of proof would be on them to show that. Um, so this doesn't really go through. Gregory Gansel says, the inference from the claim that it seems as though there's no sufficient reason to be found for evil to the conclusion that it's probably the case that there's no sufficient reason is not a strong inference, at the very least. So that's, at the very least, a rather weak claim that the argument is built upon. A little digression. I've mentioned earthquakes several times. 
Most of us associate earthquakes with death and destruction. And this will probably open up a whole can of worms about our different theologies of Genesis and so on as well. I'm going to throw it in anyway. Um, if you know about geology, you'll know that plate tectonics it plays a crucial role in the carbon cycle, in recycling the elements that are crucial for biological life on this body in space. If there were no carbon cycle, there would be no life on the planet. If there's life on the planet, you want a carbon cycle. So, do you want to be here with earthquakes, or do you not want to be here? Uh, it seems that, at least in this kind of reality, that's a choice that you have to, again, pays your money, takes your choice on it. One of the atheists argue that if they'd have been an all-powerful God, they would have designed a different sort of reality. Right, so could God have designed a different sort of reality? <coughs> well, for example, he could have refrained from creating any physical reality. Could have just created the angels and not created us, our kind of person. And then, again, it's going to come down to, well, on the whole, I'm rather glad that our kind of being exists, because I am one of them, and I quite like being here. Um, it, in a sense, is always going to boil down this conversation to, to the, the issue of, is the pain entailed by existence worth the gain? Mm. And that's not just a selfish question to ask, either. Is the gain to the overall value of reality in God's plans worth my suffering here and now? So it's not just a selfish-focused question. Actually, to say no to that question is an effect to say to oneself and to, to all humanity, actually, for the overall goodness of the value of reality on balance, it would be a good thing if humanity were wiped out. Let's press the red buttons. You know, I often think. I, I some years ago I had this um, thought while I was watching the. You may have seen it, the uh, the Luc Besson sci-fi film, The Fifth Element. It's a crazy sci-fi film. For those who haven't seen it, it involves Bruce Willis in a string vest, of course, um, but it's a sci-fi string vest, yes, um, and an ancient evil that's coming to destroy humanity. And uh, they have this uh, uh, machine given to them from the aliens that will prevent the destruction of Earth, but it'll only work when the crucial element, the fifth element, uh, which happens to be um, Mila Jovic, uh, <laughs> when, uh, to get the machine working, she uh, is a crucial part of this alien machine. She has to fall in love with a human, basically, to show that humans are worth saving. And there's a scene at the end where she's saying, uh, she's discovered about man's inhumanity to man. She's been going through the dictionary and she's got to W, looked up war on Wikipedia, whatever it is they have there, and seen all the, the images of Auschwitz and nuclear war and things come up. And she's saying to Bruce Willis, you know, why, why save humanity? Why, why are you worth it? And she says, yes, yes, we, we do terrible things to each other. Well, we misuse our freedom. But there are some good things from that as well. And she says, what, like, like what? You know, and he's saying, like, like 
And the other character said, come on, Bruce Willis, admit that you love her. It's obvious that this is what you need. Like, and Bruce Willis admits that he loves her. And Mila Jovic suddenly works and this bright light comes out from the strange alien structure and destroys the evil that's coming to, to destroy all humanity. And the whole audience in the cinema go, oh, no. Oh, what a terrible ending to the film. Humanity has survived. <laughs> and then they don't react like that, do they? Um, yeah. <laughs> I think it was fairly obvious from the kind of film that it was what the ending was going to be. But uh, yeah, so we do, I think, <laughs> have this, this instinct that the, that, that the pain is worth the gain. And when, yes, of course, individual people can get to that point when they get to the end of their rope and they feel that life is not worth living and so on. But we don't tend to say of those people, ah, those are the clear-sighted, rational people who are thinking clearly about life, the universe and everything, who we ought to emulate. (laughs) Didn't this argument take place in the course of God in Job? Indeed. A lot of this. Job is very prescient of a lot of the modern discussion of this. So, and also, of course, there's a big overlap between human corruption and sinfulness and fallenness and suffering in earthquakes. So I had a talk from a guy in Christians in Science who was a geologist, and he pointed out this amazing statistic. He said that the 2010 Haiti earthquake was 7.0 in magnitude, and it resulted in 230,000 deaths. Appalling. But that's starkly contrasted with the Californian earthquake of a couple of decades ago, which again was about 7.0 in magnitude, which caused 57 deaths. And he pointed out a lot of the corruption and so on in, in not living up to building codes, in cutting corners, in government corruption, that actually a lot of the suffering that you, you might be tempted to chalk up to natural evil of, of the way the world works actually falls into the pocket of man as in humanity to man. So anyway, Gregory Gatzel, combining our responses to one and two, says that if a good God exists, he has a good reason to allow the evil that he does allow, but how likely is it that we know what his reason, all his reasons are? Well, I think we should expect to be able to discern some likely candidates in some cases, but not others. Those who press the argument against God's existence from evil overestimate the percentage of cases where we ought to be able to figure out the answer, and they underestimate the percentage of cases in which we actually can figure out the answer. Um, I've got a, we started a little late, so I've got about five, ten, six minutes left. The fourth premise, just to summarise this, uh, this is the idea that unless there's a good reason for God to allow it, you'd have to have a good reason. There's a sort of idea that you need a one-to-one match between every evil and some justifying reason for it. And actually, some philosophers say that's highly questionable as well. well. It's a bit like saying, if you've got a good judge who issues a fair jail sentence to an offender, fine, but couldn't we say, well, why, why have you sent them to prison for seven years exactly? Why not six years, 354 days? Is that extra day on the sentence, really the thing that makes all the difference in punishing that offender or deterring other people from committing that crime? Is that day of time really the crucial factor? Couldn't 
we equally well have not punished someone with that day in prison and got, still got the same result. Isn't that day gratuitous and unnecessary? Well, what about taking two days off the sentence? Or three? Or a month? Mm. You know. So actually, is the judge being unfair in giving... Actually, what the judge has to do, in a sense, is draw an arbitrary line somewhere. Now, some arbitrary lines are clearly unfair, and some are clearly fair, and some different people might have different personal takes on, might be a bit more questionable. But there's no such thing as the exact amount of confinement that is just for the crime. Perhaps there's no such thing as the exact amount of evil that you need to have in the world in order to prevent other evils or secure other really good things. But God just has to draw an arbitrary line somewhere. So the assumption that there's got to be a one-to-one relationship, that there's got to be no vagueness in the relationship between evil and God's reasons, isn't necessarily true. So again, it's a weak uh, premise. There's no precise number or quantity of evil that must occur in the world in order to secure those goods. So actually, all of the crucial premises of that evidential argument have elements to them that are questionable at the very least. I think at the very best, the evidential argument ends up being a weak argument in the negative column. Atheist Michael Tooley says that evidential arguments, and he's one of the the world's prime advocate of this kind of argument, but even he says they're highly controversial, even if it can be shown that the evils that are found in the world render the existence of God unlikely just considered on their own, he says, it might still be the case the existence of God is not unlikely all things considered. Perhaps the argument from evil can be overcome by positive arguments to support the existence of God in the other balance pan. Or, or the idea that belief in God is, is this is a bit of technical philosophical jargon, pop, properly basic, just something you can know intuitively. Um, let me give you this chap with a wonderful beard here, a famous American Christian philosopher called Alvin Plantinga. Uh, he gives this example. He gives the example of someone accused of a crime against whom all of the evidence that's presented in court stands. Uh, thank you. If you can move that way a bit, that'd be good. Even though the person who's being accused knows that they're innocent, you know, they remember the time period in which they're accused of committing the crime, and they know they didn't do it. But they haven't got anyone to back up their alibi. All of the evidence that's been presented to the jury stacks against them, but they know they didn't do it. Are, are they therefore irrational? Because they can't point to any evidence that shows that they're innocent. Well, they're not irrational. It might be irrational for members of the jury to think they're innocent. But they know. Just on the basis of their experience. Well, maybe just on the basis of your experience of, like Job, meeting God and saying that not only is evil and suffering a reality in my life, but so is this God who I've met. 
even if you don't know how to explain those two things fitting together, you know that they do. Because you know. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe, and uh, Michael Tooley backs up. So an atheist backing up a, a theist on making this kind of a point. And even if you didn't think that your experience of God was strong enough to outweigh all of the force of the argument from evil, maybe it soaks up a good chunk of it. And the arguments that you can put in the other balance pan soak up another good chunk of it. Remember, I said at the beginning that it's obvious the argument from evil is the main atheist complaint against belief in God. On the other balance pan, <laughs> you know, Alvin Plantinga once wrote a, a famous paper called Two Dozen or So Arguments for God, for theism. <laughs> um, so there's a, a lot of evidence and so on that can be brought in on the other balance pan to build up your picture of God's existence and character that needs to be weighed against any force that you think evil has in trying to put an argument against the rationality of belief. So to finish off, Plantinga says, most atheist thinkers have given up the idea that the existence of sin and suffering and evil and so on is logically incompatible with theistic belief. And it's proven surprisingly difficult to give a plausible statement of a probabilistic evidential argument from evil. And as these arguments become more complex, they become less convincing as well. It's like the whole doing epicycles in the Ptolemaic system of the universe. You can keep making these arguments more and more subtle and more and more complex uh, in order to try and get round the objections. And the argument obviously always continues, um, but gone are the days when people could simply say, how can you believe in a god? Look, evil. (laughs) Things have moved on somewhat. Thank you very much. Please do. And all of them is that um, doesn't God say that His ways are past finding out? Yeah. Right. And the other point I wanted to make is that He said He will reign on the just and the unjust. So this is why Job had suffered. Yes, yes. And, and just as Lewis found out, not only is there the problem of evil, there's the problem of good. Uh, and you can't focus on one to the detriment of, of the other, absolutely. Just a couple yeah. of questions, yeah. please. Yeah, sure. Let's go down for a couple. What is evil? What is evil? Great. I know you were definitional questions with you earlier. So I think evil is something that is to be defined in contrast with good. Good is the ultimate reality. It's the character of God is the good. Um, It's not arbitrary, because God's not arbitrary. God just is, and that just is his character. Um, Falling short of the character of God... Being something that God, in his character, would not approve of, is to be evil. Uh, and I think it's, it's key that, I'm glad you raised that, because you make this point, because some people will have the idea that good and evil are equal and opposite realities, like left and right. But good and evil are not equal and opposite realities. Good can exist without evil. You can have an entirely and wholly good reality. 
That's what God is. God, without the creation, only good existed. You cannot have only evil without good. Uh, Again, back to C.S. Lewis. He made the point that even in order to do evil, Satan must misuse God's good gifts. Um, Personality, existence, intelligence, intentionality, all of these are in and of themselves good things that you can misuse to do bad. You can't even do bad or fall short of good if you don't have some good. So good is primary and evil is secondary, is parasitic upon goodness. And that's why we can have ultimate confidence that good will triumph over evil. Because it's not an eternal struggle between you know, the good God and the bad God and so on. It is our God versus evil. <laughs> yeah. We'll leave it we'll there. Lovely, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.